Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon Church, and it's my privilege this morning to lead us through our study in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles with you, or you're going to grab one from the seat back in front of you, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 15 and going on through 21. If you did grab the Bible that was in front of you, that's on page 978. 978. Uh, And as you turn there, let me just pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that we can come and worship you together freely. And Father, now as we hear your word, I pray that you just help us to have ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are ready to uh, just soak this in and help us to live this out in our lives as well. We just pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul begins with this phrase, look carefully how you walk. It's maybe not something that we would use in everyday conversation that that often, like look carefully how you walk. Uh, But it's interesting for me as I was reading through this passage and as I I was thinking about this text, I realized that I say this phrase almost every other sentence these days. You see, I have a one-year-old son named Carter. Uh, He's about this high, and he's just learning how to walk right now. And so every other sentence seems to be something like, careful, or like, careful, just, oh, okay, don't do it, just careful. And it seems that I'm saying these kinds of things over and over again. Uh, But other than with my son learning how to walk, this isn't a phrase I would probably normally use in everyday conversation. And and it's interesting that Paul uses it here. Uh, You see, he's not speaking literally. In other words, he's not telling the Ephesian church uh, to be careful that they don't slip as they're walking down the street. He's using this language metaphorically to talk about the entirety of of someone's life. And we've seen this being used uh, throughout this section of Ephesians. So Ephesians 4, uh, Paul says, look carefully, or sorry, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Uh, In other words, he's saying, live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have as a Christian. And we've been coming through this section from chapter 4, and we've been seeing a lot of things like, do this, but don't do this. And walk in this way, but don't walk in this way. Uh, You can call them commands, uh, you can call them rules, you can call them imperatives, even if you want to. Uh, But whatever you call them, there's no denying that this section has quite a few of them. And so maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, it's interesting to see all these commands, because don't we often say things like, Christianity is about a relationship, not about rules? Or don't we always say things like, Christianity isn't about what you do, but it's about what Christ has done for you. And maybe you're thinking, how do we we kind of fit these two realities together? That we're going through a section of text that has a lot of rules, uh, but we know that we're saved by God's grace. How do we fit those together? Uh, Well, Paul uses the metaphor of walking. And if we look back on how he's actually used that word in the book so far, things are going to make sense for us. Uh, So if you go back all the way to chapter 2, Paul's going to talk about what we, how good we are at walking without Christ, and he paints a pretty bleak picture. This is what he says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2. He says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Uh, so again, it's not a pretty picture. 
Paul says, without Christ, left to ourselves, we're all walking on the same path. It's a path that's leading away from God. It's a path that's uh, in our sins, in our trespasses. And that's the way we walk if we're left to ourselves. And it's important to notice what Paul doesn't say after this. He doesn't say you were walking in that direction, but somehow you managed to walk carefully and you kind of turned yourself around and started taking a few steps towards God. And then you eventually learned to walk really well. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to enter into relationship with you because you, you just did enough good things. That's not at all what Paul says. This is what he says. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so listen, this command to walk carefully doesn't come to those who are on the outside of a relationship with Christ, seeking to earn God's approval. This command comes to those who have been saved by God's grace. In other words, they were walking in the opposite direction that God called them to, and God didn't say, turn around and then I'll have something to do with you. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we can enter into relationship with him. Uh, but that's not where the story ends. In verse t- or chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we're walking away from God, and God in his grace shows mercy to us when we don't deserve it. But that's not the end of the story. He actually then enables us to walk in a manner Uh, worthy of the calling that we've received. And so listen to this. We don't enter into relationship with God by changing the way that we walk. But entering into a relationship with God will necessarily change the way that we walk. I'm going to say that again so that we, we hear it right. We don't enter into relationship with God by changing the way we walk. But entering into relationship with him will necessarily change the way that we walk, change the way that we live our lives. And this is how you make sense of the second half of Ephesians. Uh, where you have a lot of rules and a lot of commands and a lot of imperatives, we can actually embrace these commands, not worrying that we're going to try to somehow earn God's favor or not as a reason so that we can boast in in relation to those around us. Uh, We walk in these commands because God has actually done something that we can never do for ourselves. And he's actually enabled us by his spirit to walk in this way that he's called us to. And so it's in this context that he gives us the command uh, to walk carefully. And he adds this, he says, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is an interesting thing. Uh, In the Bible, Paul and and the other authors, whenever they talk about wisdom, it's always more than just head knowledge. Uh, Head knowledge is important, and Paul's going to give three chapters of theology at the beginning of Ephesians uh, to, to make us realize that knowledge is important. But wisdom is always about more than knowledge. It's always about living wisely or living skillfully based on the knowledge that we have. And I know that we can probably all think of someone that we know that's really smart in terms of head knowledge. They have a lot of information stored up here, but it doesn't always translate into wise choices in the day-to-day. And I can see some of you guys are nodding, but before we get too carried away, if we're honest with ourselves, this is probably us way more than we'd like to admit, right? We, 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 we know what we're supposed to do. We know what the truth is, and yet we make these decisions that don't line up with that. And so here's Paul saying, it's great that you guys have head knowledge, but you guys need to learn to walk in wisdom, which is actually going to see that knowledge worked out in every area of your life. And he goes on to unpack this in verse 16. He says this, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Uh, To sum up what Paul's trying to say here, your outline says this, because of our new identity in Jesus, we are commanded to walk in wisdom 
That is with a sense of urgency. The phrase that's translated here as make the best use of your time uh, can be more literally translated as buying back or redeeming the time. Now, obviously, nobody really speaks like that in English, and so the ESV has had to translate it as they have, but it's, it's kind of similar to the phrase we sometimes use when we ask someone to buy us some time, or if someone asks us to buy them some time. What they mean by that is there's, some, there's a task or there's a situation that's just demanding a lot of time and attention, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get things done on time. There's this urgency uh, to this phrase uh, that's meant to be seen here. And so the translation that the ESV gives us is a great translation as long as we remember that the reason we're to make the best use of our time is because there's an urgency to what we've been called to. Uh, Urgency is an interesting thing, isn't it? I think we all know what it feels like to have a sense of urgency in our lives. Uh, This is what we feel, for example, when we're at work and we've got a big project that's on the go and everybody's working on it. It's all hands on deck. And then all of a sudden, two people quit within one week. And, and the task is still the same. We just now have less people to do it in the same amount of time. There's a sense of urgency uh, when those things happen. Or, or this is what you feel when you're in school and you've got three papers due in the span of two days. Actually, you probably had all semester to work on them, but there's two days left now. And there's a sense of urgency of how am I going to get everything done? Or maybe this one, maybe this sense of urgency comes from one kid having a soccer practice on one side of the city, another kid having dance lessons on the other side of the city, uh, both of them having homework to do, both of them needing to eat dinner sometime in there, and you're realizing that this is actually going to be every day, probably for the next seven years. Uh, and there's a sense of urgency. And what happens in these times is, is we do this thing where we decompartmentalize our lives. What I mean by that is we start doing things in context that we normally wouldn't do them just so we can get stuff done. And so maybe if we have a lot going on at work, we start bringing our work home with us from the office and time that would normally be spent with our family is now spent on the computer at home or spent doing work uh, when we should be with our family. Uh, Maybe we we bring a backpack with us everywhere and every spare minute we're either taking out a book to read or we're taking out an assignment to work on because every spare minute is going to be used to its fullest potential because we feel this urgency in our lives. Uh, Some of us have got this down to a science where every spare minute, literally from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, uh, we're using it all strategically uh, for the things that we have to do in our lives. We all know what this feels like, but here's the question I want to ask us today. How often do we feel this sense of urgency when it comes to the calling that we have as believers? Uh, Now, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you guys aren't busy. I'm not saying that we're not busy. But I think we're sometimes pretty good at keeping our Christian life and keeping our Christian activities kind of in their own special places in our life uh, and not letting it really uh, change the way we live our day to day. Uh, So, for example, we might be really busy. We'll go to church on Sunday Uh, On on Tuesday, we'll have Bible study. On Wednesday, we'll sing in the choir. On Thursday, we'll volunteer with the youth group. Uh, And and we'll have all these different things that we're doing, but maybe large portions of our life, we haven't given much thought to how being a Christian has any effect on that. And so, for example, we'll go grocery shopping, or we'll go to the gym for a workout, or we'll go to the office to work for the day, or we'll go to the movies with friends, and we'll do all these activities— without giving thought to how the fact that we've been saved by Christ relates to any of these things. Uh, We like to keep our Christian life sometimes within its own neat little confined spaces in our life where it's it's meant to be. 
Now, when I grew up, uh, I went to VBS in the summer. VBS stands for Vacation Bible School. It's similar to the day camps that we run at Willingdon here sometimes. And one of the things that I enjoyed about VBS one year was that we had a coloring contest. Uh, Coloring contest is basically you get a a drawing or a picture and there's no colors in it. And your job is to provide the colors. And if you do a good job with this, uh, you might win a prize. So I was probably seven years old at this time. and, And I still remember it quite vividly. It was a picture of a hot air balloon with some kids in the hot air balloon. It was something to do with the theme of that week. And I just, I got on board with this product. So I was picking up my colors. I was making sure I was coloring in the lines. I was trying to do shading of dark to light. And I was taking tons of time to make sure that I got this drawing just immaculate, just looking good. And so I show up on my first day of VBS and I hand in my drawing and I put it on the table with all the rest of them. And I remember just kind of doing a walk down the table just to kind of check out the competition. And, and I remember kind of looking at some of them and saying, oh, not bad, not bad. But pretty soon I was quite confident that there's not a chance in the world that I was going to lose this competition because my drawing was just objectively the best. Uh, and so I'm walking through the day quite satisfied in myself, quite happy, uh, doing all these activities. Finally, at the end of the day, we come back to this same room and we notice that there's been uh, prizes, or prizes in, assigned to the drawings. And so I see something uh, by my drawing, I go over to, to claim my victory. And the thing says, second place. And I, I'm thinking to myself, maybe someone entered late and they had a really good one. I go over, I see the first place drawing. I kid you not, it was a kid that had taken a crayon, a red crayon, and just went like this all over his paper. And, and still to this day, I'm not sure why that kid won. Uh, but obviously I haven't forgot about it. So it's still affecting me. <laughs> but but the, reason that I, the reason that I tell this story is this. I think so often we're good at coloring within the lines when it comes to our faith, Uh, keeping everything neat within its own spaces on Sunday mornings or on Tuesday nights, whenever they are. And I think realistically, we need to be more like that kid that just took the red crayon and went like this all over his paper. Uh, Our faith is meant to be something that touches every aspect of what we do. Uh, And it's going to be messy and it's not always going to, we're not always going to know how that works itself out. But I think this is what we're called to because Paul commands us to make the best use of our time, to live with this urgency. And if we're honest, that command only makes sense if we're committed to seeing our faith lived out in every aspect of our lives. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, yeah, of course, that's what we're supposed to do. But how do we actually go about doing that? And Paul's going to help us. He writes this in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Your outline says this, because of our new identity in Jesus, we are commanded to walk in wisdom, that is, according to God's will. Paul tells us to understand what the will of the Lord is. And again, it's important to recognize that he's not telling us to understand what the will of the Lord is, just so that we can kind of have correct theology about the will of the Lord. He's telling us to understand the will of the Lord so that we can actually walk in line with God's will. And so this raises the question, what is the will of the Lord and how am I supposed to know what it is? Well, that's a big question, and we could go about answering that many ways. But what I thought, thought was helpful this week as I studied was looking back in Ephesians to the way that this phrase has been used. And we see right away in chapter 1 that Paul goes on to list a whole bunch of things that are according to God's will. So he lists all these blessings that the believers have in Christ. He says that they have received adoption, that God has given them forgiveness of sins, that God has welcomed them into his family, that God has sealed them with the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes that, He did all these things according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, God's will is what he has revealed to us that he is pleased to do and is doing in this world and in our lives. 
And so as we go through the first three chapters, we see a whole bunch of examples of this. Uh, We see that it's God's will for people to be reconciled to him, that is to enter into relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We see that it's God's will for people to be reconciled to each other through what Jesus has done on the cross. Uh, We see that it's God's will for those who are in Christ to grow in their faith, uh, for those who don't know Christ to come to know him and be saved by him. And, And so we go through Ephesians, we see all these examples of what God's will is. And if, as we read through the entirety of Scripture, we see countless examples of what God has revealed that He's pleased to do and is doing in this world. You see, I, I don't think what Paul's saying here, I don't think what he's saying is wait around for God to tell you audibly in an audible voice what He wants you to do specifically in every aspect of your life. Uh, there's times when God leads us in those ways and when He specifically calls us to certain things. But remember, there's a sense of urgency here. Paul's not saying wait around till you get a clear sense. He's saying understand what the will of the Lord is so you can start aligning your life with that will in every aspect. You see, when we consciously consider what God's will is and seek to line our lives up with that, we're going to realize that there's actually an immense mission field in front of us. Uh, I went to Bible college in Saskatchewan. I graduated a number of years ago. And uh, one of the things about Saskatchewan is there's not much to do there. Uh, it's, it's a pretty... Uh, not much going on. So one of the highlights that we had uh, at Bible College was taking trips into Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw is a thriving metropolis by Saskatchewan standards. And we used to go there sometimes just to get away from our studies and to enjoy some time. And and I remember one particular time that I went to Moose Jaw because friends had asked me, hey, James, do you want to come with us? Uh, We're going to go on a prayer walk in Moose Jaw. And I wasn't quite sure what a prayer walk was at that time, but I knew I liked prayer and I knew I liked Moose Jaw. So I thought, yeah, let's, let's do this. And so we're driving to Moose Jaw, and about halfway, halfway there, the, the person who's driving turns down the radio, and they says, okay, let, let's, uh, let's just start praying for Moose Jaw. And so that's what we did. Uh, we prayed for the people that lived in Moose Jaw. We tried to think of uh, what they might be going through, the things they might struggle with. Uh, we prayed for the leadership of the city. We prayed for the mayor of Moose Jaw and for the various other leaders who are called upon to serve that city. And then we just prayed that God would give us opportunities as we walked through Moose Jaw on that day, to to meet people with whom we could share the gospel or to meet people that we could pray with or to meet people that we could just encourage uh, in some ways. And and we went into the city in that way. Now, here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that a lot of things about that trip didn't change at all. Uh, We we still drove the same road to Moose Jaw. Uh, We stopped at the same gas station. We went to the same grocery store. Uh, We went to the same restaurants that we always had gone to before. But on the other hand, something profound was different as well. Uh, we went into Moose Jaw with this sense of purpose and this sense of urgency because we had seek to align ourselves with God's will in that city. And, and there was something different about it where, you know, maybe another time you would have walked past someone and not even noticed. Now you're walking past someone and you're seeing an opportunity to share God's love. And, and you have this opportunity to walk in obedience or, or to not, but you, you're, you have this awareness of what's going on around you that you maybe wouldn't have before. Uh, this was a profound experience for me. But, but the thing is, as I think about it, this is actually not supposed to be something that's kind of an unusual once every few years experience. Uh, I think as Christians, this is how we're supposed to actually walk through all of life. And, and, and I'd love to be able to tell you that since this day, this is how I've always gone about everything that I've ever done, but I, I still haven't got this figured out. I finished writing this sermon on Thursday handed in my manuscript, and I just uh, had written this part. And I went shopping at Metro Town that night, got some stuff that I needed, came back home and realized, man, I just completely missed an opportunity to be doing what I just preached. 
I went to the store with mission and purpose, but my mission and purpose was to get everything on my list as quickly as I could. You see, I didn't take the time to align myself with God's will, and I, I totally missed an opportunity. And, and the reality that is, if we're not used to doing this, this is going to be something that's difficult for us uh, to get into the habit of. Uh, but it's something that I've committed to working on and trying to improve on for the rest of my life. Because here's the thing. I've made, a, I've made a declaration that Jesus is the Lord of my life. And I've said publicly that, that he's the Lord of every aspect of my life, not just parts of my life. He's the Lord of every aspect of my life. But here's the deal. When I live in areas of my life as if God doesn't make a difference, that's exactly the message that people are going to hear. If I go through large portions of my life as if Jesus doesn't have any impact on those, people are going to start to think that Jesus doesn't have any impact on those areas of my life. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so I'm committed to working on this because I think it's so important. Uh, Paul's going to help us with this because I, I hope we realize by now that on our own, there's actually not much we can do, right? We talked about how we, we can't save ourselves. And, and I think we're probably feeling convicted that we can't even walk this way on our own strength. We need God's help. And so Paul writes this in verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, when did we start talking about alcohol? Or when did, like, when did the topic of drinking come up? And, and you might be thinking the command's a little bit oddly placed. And of course, it's Paul's right to, if he wants to talk about drinking, you know, when he does, he can, he can do that. But what I think is actually happening here is, is Paul's using this command pretty strategically. Uh, what he's doing is he's setting up a contrast between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. Uh, speaking of this contrast, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, Alcohol negatively controls everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, and the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. What the Holy Spirit does, however, is the exact opposite. See, Paul is basically saying, if you're going to be filled with something that's going to control and influence the way that you experience reality and live your life, be filled with God's spirit. And having made this contrast, he leaves the topic of alcohol behind and goes on to talk about what it looks like to be filled with the spirit of God. Uh, we've seen already that the Holy Spirit's really important in the book of Ephesians as it is in the life of the believer. And so in chapter one, we've learned that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit when we, when we come to believe in Jesus. Uh, we've learned that we can grieve the Holy Spirit by broken relationships. And now we're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is probably a phrase that maybe we don't use as often as we should in our daily lives. And so probably a lot of us are wondering, well, what does it actually look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? How do I, how do I actually obey this command that God has given us here? And to answer this, I think it's helpful to look at the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is, is a story of the early church, and it's just filled with times when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as I look through some examples of that uh, in the book of Acts of when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, I noticed a couple of things that I wanted to share with you. And, and the first is this, that sometimes people are filled with the Holy Spirit in moments of great need in ministry. Uh, this is when someone is, is either having to give a defense of the gospel or they're kind of put on the spot in front of a large crowd of people and have to speak for Christ. Uh, it's clear that in their own strength, they're not going to be able to say what they need to say. And so the text simply says, being filled with the Holy Spirit they spoke. So an example of this would be Peter as he stands before the Jewish council. Uh, he's being accused of many different things and he's being uh, accused of, of preaching Jesus. And the text says that being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter spoke. 
Another example we see is Stephen when he's standing in front of an angry mob that's about to actually kill him for his faith. The text says that being filled with the Holy Spirit, he looks into heaven and testifies about Jesus. And, and so in these, in these examples, I noticed that people weren't necessarily asking for the Holy Spirit in those times, but God gave the Holy Spirit in those times for the specific need of ministry that they were facing. Uh, that's the first thing I noticed. The second was this. Sometimes people are filled with the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And the most familiar example probably would be from Paul's own life. Uh, the Paul who wrote this letter, he's in the book of Acts. And after he becomes a Christian, Ananias comes to him and says, uh, puts his hands on, on him and says, Paul, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's another way that we see this happening. Uh, but the third and maybe the most practical for us today, we see the Holy Spirit filling people in the context of prayer. In Acts 4.31, it says this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen when he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, them, ask him? And so as believers, we're to be open to times when God will fill us with his Spirit for specific tasks and ministry, for specific answers that we need to give to questions, for specific times when we need to tell people about Jesus. And we're also called to earnestly ask and seek God to fill us with his spirit. Uh, to call out to God in, in prayer and say, God, would you fill me with your spirit? One of the things we also notice, though, and I hope you notice this, is that when people are filled with the spirit in the Bible, it's never just so that they can have kind of a nice feeling or that they can just kind of have this experience. Uh, the Holy Spirit is always given to, the, given to people in the context of real life ministry. Uh, so we read just, just a moment ago that uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word with boldness. Uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they, and they spoke. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to do ministry. The Holy Spirit always uh, is in our lives for the sake of living according to the gospel. And we're going to notice this in the next few verses that there is actually no aspect of our lives that being filled by the Holy Spirit won't affect. And we're going to talk about all of them, but we'll start where Paul does. Your outline says this. Because of our new identity in Jesus, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which will affect the way we worship together. Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So Paul makes this assertion that being filled with the Spirit is going to enable and impact the way we worship as we address God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Actually, that's not quite what the text says. If you look at it, it actually says, as we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And of course, Paul does go on to say, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. Uh, but it's interesting to me that he says, addressing one another. And, and as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, what does this actually look like practically for us to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Uh, I, I thought how interesting it would be if one morning, instead of saying, turn around and greet your neighbor, we said, turn around and sing a, sing a spiritual song to your neighbor, right? It would probably make most of us uncomfortable. Probably some of us would make an excuse why we couldn't do that. Um, but the question still remains, what does this actually look like practically in the life of the church? How can we live in obedience to this? And, and I think what Paul's getting at, or at least one of the things he's getting at, is, is that when we come together to worship God in song, uh, there's, there's multiple layers of what's going on there. Uh, first, we are worshiping only God. We've got to be clear about that. We're worshiping God. But as we sing these songs, there's a sense in which we're also addressing one another. 
Uh, what I mean by that is there's sometimes when we sing, when we're declaring to those around us the goodness of God. Uh, some of our songs are written like this, where we say, God is like this. God is an awesome God. Jesus is an incredible Savior. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. We sing these lyrics out, and when we do that, we declare to the people around us, and, and the people around us declare to us these great truths about who God is. And, and I love this because there's going to be times in our lives when we come to church and we've just had a rough week. Uh, whether it's a relationship that's gone bad or just something at work that's eating away at us or, or there's just a prayer that we've been praying and praying and we haven't seen any answers to it. There's going to be weeks when the music starts on a Sunday morning and we're just not at a place where we feel like we can sing. And, and, and so we're just kind of standing there and, and the music's going on and we're just not ready to sing yet. But I know that in a body like this, there's also going to be people that same morning who have tasted and seen the goodness of God that week. And maybe they've seen this incredible answer to prayer or they've had this incredible time in, in their Bible reading when they just something's come alive to them or they've had this awesome time just praying to God even that morning. And the music starts and they're just ready to belt it out. See, what happens in those times is those who are discouraged receive encouragement from the body of Christ as we sing out and declare to God our praises to him. Uh, we're declaring to one another who our God is, and we're calling one another to worship him. Uh, which leads me into the obvious, I hope, statement that when we sing, we are also singing and worshiping God. Uh, and, and that's uh, an awesome thing that God has created us for. Uh, because there's something about singing and, and, and declaring these truths through song that there's something that words just couldn't do in those, in those circumstances. Like, that's why we don't have... Um, you know, someone up here in a monotone voice leading us in worship or, you know, saying, how great is our God? Say with me, how great. Like, there, the truth would be there and, and we'd have all the same lyrics maybe and the truth of, of the message would be there, but something would be missing because God has actually created us to express joy and satisfaction in him through singing songs, through raising our voices, through lifting our hands and expressing with our whole being who he is. Uh, this is why we actually sing in church. Maybe you've Never thought about that, why we sing in church. Maybe you've been coming to church your whole life and it's the most normal thing in the world to, for you to see a bunch of people together on a Sunday morning singing songs. Uh, but maybe you've, you've been coming to church more recently or is this is something new for you. And it's actually really strange seeing a group of people from all ages and stages of life coming together on a Sunday morning to sing songs together. Uh, and and if, if, if we're honest, it's actually behavior that demands an explanation. Uh, why do we do this? Some people th say it's because, you know, it's just tradition. This is what we've always done, so that's why we sing songs. Or some people think, well, maybe they're trying to be innovative and trying to reach a new generation. Well, those may be aspects of it in some way, but the reality is we sing songs to God because that is how God has created us to worship him. And God is worthy of our worship. Uh, the text goes on to say that this is also done with our heart. Now, now some people have taken this to mean that that's something that we do silently, which would kind of contradict what I just said. But what I think is going on here is with our heart isn't speaking to uh, the fact that this is done silently. It's actually speaking to the sincerity with which we worship. I think we all know it's possible to, to say something with our mouth or to sing something and, and not to actually mean it with our hearts. And so Paul's saying here, God doesn't just want you to sing songs and, and have your heart just far away from what you're singing. We actually uh, need to worship with all of who we are. And this is where it's important to recognize that although singing songs and worship is an incredible gift God's given us, there's more to worship than just singing. Uh, worship is actually a life that's turned toward God at all times in thanksgiving. And so Paul goes on to say this, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your outline says, because of our new identity in Jesus, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which will affect the way we speak and think about everything. I originally was going to say this will affect our private devotional life, but I just wasn't happy with that because it isn't just meant to be something that's private. And it isn't just supposed to be Thanksgiving in those times we kind of set aside to read God's word and pray to him. This is supposed to be encompassing all of life. Paul uses some extreme language. He says, always and for everything. And I'll admit, when I read this at first, my mind immediately went to questions like, like, Paul, can you seriously tell us to be thankful always and for everything? And I started having this debate in my mind of like, there's surely got to be times when it's, it's actually wrong to be thankful for things. Like, Paul, what about times when innocent people suffer terrible crimes against themselves? Like, should we be thankful for those things? I started having this debate in my head and I read these commentators and some of the commentaries were asking some of the same ethical, moral questions. And you know what? We, co- we completely missed the point. We completely missed the point because Paul's not writing this so you can start thinking about hypothetically what would be wrong to be thankful for. He's writing this so that we'll be thankful for the things that we so often take for granted. Uh, nobody's ever come up to me lately, and maybe you, you're different, but no one's come up to me lately and said, James, you're way too thankful. Can you tone it down? Because it's scaring everyone. Like, nobody's had that conversation with me. Uh, if, if there's anything I'm guilty with, it's probably of complaining too much rather than giving thanks too much. I think complaining comes more naturally to us sometimes, right? If, if Paul said to us, complain always and about everything, we'd walk away and say, oh, finally, a command I can actually do in the Bible, right? But But here's the deal. We're not called to complain as easy as that comes to us uh, because complaining doesn't lead people to worship God. Uh, Thanksgiving does. Earlier this month, one of our interns that you just met on the screen was sharing a devotional and they they said this line that really stood out to me. He said, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm just so thankful to God for this blessing he's given us. And, And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, you know what? I don't think I actually have been thankful for that blessing. But wow, praise God. What an awesome gift he's given us. Um, Thanksgiving points people to the glory and goodness of God. Uh, there's this man named Jeff Vanderstelt, who's a pastor down in Tacoma, Washington. And he tells the story of a time that he was at a get-together uh, uh, with one of the people in his congregation, had, had kind of like a block party for the people on his street. And so he's at this gathering, and there's most of the people that are there, probably 95% of the people that are there, aren't Christians. They're not believers. They don't have uh, any connections to churches. And those that probably do have connections to churches uh, have more of kind of a negative connection. They've been maybe burned by the church in the past, or they just, they, they've heard things, or they, they've had experiences that have led them to have a negative view of Christianity, of pastors and churches. And so this is kind of the situation that, uh, that they're walking into. And so right before they eat, Jeff's friend that invited him from the church says to everyone, hey, everyone just wanted to let you know that this is my friend Jeff. He's a pastor, and he's going to pray for our food right now. And people kind of look at Jeff with suspicious eyes. And, and Jeff is on the spot. And I love this story because you know, I think he's in this moment filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, thinks to himself, how can I make the best use of this time? And he, this is what he does. He says, hey, everyone, my name's Jeff. Yes, and I'm a pastor. And he tries to explain a little bit what that means. And he says to them, yeah, I, I work at this church in the city. And you may have had bad experiences with churches in the past. But this is kind of what we're trying to do. And this is what we're trying to do in the community. And then he says this, he says, I want to go around right now and I want everyone just to say something they're thankful for. And, and this is, you know, easy enough because we do this at Thanksgiving or other, other times we just go around and say what we're thankful for. And, and so people say, okay, let's do it. And so one by one, they start listing off things. So some people say, 
uh, you know, thankful for this good food or I'm thankful for the weather that it's not raining or I'm thankful for family or I'm thankful for friendships. And, and people start listing off all these things they're thankful for. And it comes around the circle and comes back to Jeff. And, and here's what he says. He says, I honestly believe that everything that we've just said, everything that we just said we're thankful for is a gift that God has given us. And what I want to do right now is I want to take this thanksgiving that we've just offered up and I want to direct it to the God who deserves it. And so that's what he did. He says this prayer. He thanks God for these things. And then they go on with their meal. And I love this story because as believers, we know who deserves our thanksgiving. Uh, This is why Paul doesn't tell us just be a happy person. He doesn't tell us just be optimistic. He doesn't even say have an attitude of thanksgiving. He says, give thanks to God in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Because when we do that, it leads others to worship him and it reminds ourselves of his goodness. This leads us into our final point. Your outline says, because of our new identity in Jesus, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which will affect the way we relate to one another. Paul writes this in verse 21, be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Now it's important to recognize when we see one another in this context, we're not just talking about relationships within the church. Paul's actually going to go on to talk about all of the relationships that we experience on a day-to-day basis. And we're not going to have time to unpack this this morning, but Paul's going to go on in detail to talk about relationships in marriage, relationships of parents and children, relationships in the workplace. And he's going to unpack those for us. But the reason we bring this up now is because I want you to see that being filled with the Spirit affects every aspect of who we are and what we do. It affects how we worship together as believers. It affects how we see the world and how we speak about the things around us. And it affects how we relate to everybody that we come across. There's no aspects of our life that aren't affected by the Holy Spirit if he is filling us. This is because, listen now, every aspect of who we are and what we do is meant to be on mission for God and empowered for that mission by the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of what we do and who we are is meant to be lived on mission for God. And and we're not going to get this right all the time. Paul says, look carefully how you walk. And that's the only language you really use for people who aren't very good at walking. And so there's going to be times when we fail, but let's continue to commit to this because Jesus is Lord of every aspect of our lives. And we want to live as if that reality is true. And so let's make the most of the time. Let's understand what the will of God is and let's be filled with his spirit. And as we go today, I want to leave you with these words I often say to my son. Be careful how you walk and know that you are loved. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for all your blessings in our life. Father, we thank you that when we were walking away from you, you showed grace to us and allowed us to be in relationship with you. And now, Father, as we seek to walk according to your will, as we seek to walk on mission for you, help us when we're weak, help us when we fail. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that even as we leave this place, and as we drive home today, we would do so with a sense of urgency and purpose and power by your Spirit. Father, we pray these things because we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.